1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality. And that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with Must See the central narrative the fiction that it is we are americans while elections are sometimes messy this was a secure election the founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance and it's up to us to finish the job i tell you what we are in a truth emergency right now this is the end game It's Wednesday, April 5th, 2023, the 805th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month, and in doing so, You will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So as we talked about yesterday, the seal has been broken. The Rubicon has been crossed. Donald Trump has been arraigned. We saw no handcuffs, no mugshot. And at this point, there has not been a gag order imposed. Now, while Donald Trump was in court yesterday, Eric Trump tweeted this breaking. The Ninth Circuit just awarded Trump one hundred twenty one thousand nine hundred sixty two dollars and fifty six cents in attorney fees from Stormy Daniels. Order just released. This is in addition to the roughly $500,000 she already owes him. Fox News from yesterday. Trump awarded nearly $122,000 in attorney fees from Stormy Daniels. Former President Donald Trump on Tuesday was awarded nearly $122,000 in attorney fees from Stormy Daniels, the porn star at the center of hush money payments during the 2016 campaign. They mention Eric Trump's tweet and go on. Trump attorney Harmeet Dillon of the Dillon Law Group shared a copy of the order, tweeting congratulations to President Trump on this final attorney fee victory in his favor this morning. Dillon said her firm has collectively obtained more than six hundred thousand dollars in attorney fee awards in the former president's favor in the, quote, meritless litigation initiated by Stormy Daniels. And you have to love the timing on that one. Now, a lot of people online are very upset with this whole thing. They're talking about how we are now a banana republic. A lot of people are dooming and blackpilling. And all of those are legitimate reactions. I just don't think they're the right reaction to have. I didn't just find out yesterday that we live in a banana republic, and you all didn't either. That was clear when we learned that elections are stolen. And we'll talk some more about that in a few minutes. We've seen a lot of people talking about how it's a disgrace that a political party in power, as the fake administration is seen to be, has now reached the level of prosecuting its political opponents. And again, that's absolutely valid. There is a point of societal breakdown where illegitimate regimes do this to protect their own grip on power. But just because that's the case, that doesn't mean in itself that prosecuting people of opposition political parties is necessarily bad. And we've been convinced over the course of our lives that it is, that it is always the sign of an illegitimate government to do that. And oftentimes it is, but not all the time. Think about what we hear from other countries, from Myanmar, from Burkina Faso, about how the military has deposed the legitimately elected regime government, legitimately elected in the same election systems and with the same fraud we have here, and that that too is the sign of an illegitimate authoritarian dictatorship oppressing its political opposition. But that's not what that is. And to assume that those things are always the same, the prosecution of corrupt criminal political actors equals an authoritarian dictatorship willing to abuse state power in order to stay in control. Well, that gets the whole thing backwards. We need to have a country where corrupt and criminal political actors who have abused the system to get where they are. And who are happy to abuse the power of that system to oppress the political opposition can actually be dealt with. What I'm saying is that the societal norm, our societal understanding over decades of mass media propaganda, that any legal pursuit of corrupt political actors is necessarily partisan and politically biased and itself an abuse of political power is false. And the reason we were told otherwise was to protect corrupt people as they abuse their political authority. That norm has now been obliterated and the regime is responsible for obliterating that norm. Trump is being arraigned on completely ridiculous charges, which means that any charges are now fair game. If you can go after Trump on this then certainly you can go after Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden and Barack Obama for their role in the election fraud system. You can go after them for selling out American interests to foreign adversaries. And of course, it's not just the Democrats. All the members of the regime just lost their number one defense when it comes to how they use public narratives to guide public perception and protect themselves. We legitimately have Democrats out there screaming, lock him up. They are now publicly unopposed to the prosecution of political figures. That is a necessary advancement in societal perception. If you want to see the actual political criminals ever held accountable. And you don't have to believe that that's the end result of some master plan to understand that that is a real end result and it is going to matter in a major way in the future. The indictment itself was 34 counts that might as well have been copy and pasted from each of the other counts. They were all essentially the same thing and covered each and every instance of transactions that they say are connected to this Stormy Daniels situation. Bragg claims that all of this was done in service of intentionally covering up another crime, but he fails to list what that crime is. He just accuses Donald Trump of having falsified these records, says there's another crime and says he doesn't have to tell anybody about it. Now, from what I understand, that is technically legally true, but it certainly doesn't help substantiate any underlying claims of Trump's guilt on any of this, and not even the mainstream media thinks that it does, or at least most of it. CNN called the indictment underwhelming, just right on air. Or may not be um,
2: your reaction now that you've had a chance to go through it. um, Is it what you thought it was going to be? And are you unimpressed? It it is what I thought it was going to be in terms of focusing on the payments that were made, the falsification of the records, and really tied to the payment that was made to Stormy Daniels. Uh, in terms of a case that's being brought against a former president, it's a little underwhelming. Um, mm. there's, there's not more to it. Uh, there's not more violations, tax violations. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not an incredible new set of facts that we didn't know about publicly It's really the facts of this case as they have existed for basically almost seven years.
1: So that was a woman named Carrie Cordero, who is a former counsel to the U.S. Assistant Attorney General. Imagine being a CNN viewer, chanting either out loud or in their hearts, lock him up and then seeing CNN tell you that this indictment is underwhelming. The new thing everyone's saying is that this is the weakest of the four cases out there as part of the get Trump effort, as if the other cases are stronger and we're just going to keep building toward that strongest case and then we'll finally get Trump. But that's even kind of a better position than Rachel Maddow is putting her audience in. When you read this indictment, right? I think either call is defensible. Like it's a bubble case. It's not a slam dunk, I don't think. Like, they're going to have, like, some reach on the ball. It feels
2: so much more solid to me today than it did before we saw this indictment, though. I mean,
1: mean, again, on the facts, but on the the law stuff's tricky. But you need to be able to prove
2: that there were deliberately falsified business records, falsified with intent for a corrupt purpose, and that they were falsified in order to conceal or facilitate the commission of another crime. Today we got the recitation of the crime and the receipts for all the records. I didn't expect that much. I thought with
1: all the critique that this was such a bubble issue in terms of the law, that it would be much fuzzier. So Rachel Maddow is distributing the new slogans that people insane enough to continue watching MSNBC will be out there repeating today and tomorrow and maybe for the next two years. We got the facts. We got the receipts. That's all we need. Trump is guilty. Lock him up. Chris Hayes won't even go down that road. And as soon as he starts, Rachel Maddow jumps in to defend the indictment. I've said it before and it remains true. It is unbelievable what these people are willing to do to their audience. It's just cruel at this point. So Donald Trump left his arraignment, flew back down to Mar a Lago, and gave a speech last night. He went about 25, 26 minutes. He was calm, he was cool, he was collected. He recited the list of things that Democrats have done, the elements of this political persecution. And I had people who do not spend their time paying attention to all this are not fully on board with Trump texting me and telling me this is the best they've seen Trump in three years. And the polls reflect that Mark Mitchell from Rasmussen was on War Room this morning talking about how there have been massive shifts in the polls, including among Democrats, and liberals, Hispanic voters over the last six weeks or so toward Trump. Through all of this, he is looking better than he has ever looked. Now, in the past week, RSBN somehow got another strike against their YouTube account. So they were taken down for seven days. They were not able to broadcast Trump's speech on YouTube last night. Everyone headed over to Rumble and so many people were watching the stream on Rumble that Rumble basically shut down. It was overloaded. We couldn't even do Badlands Story Hour last night because Rumble didn't work for like 45 minutes. Now, that's bad for us and I guess sort of bad for Rumble, probably making up for it with the fact that that happening means that platform is a place people go now and that the demand for Trump speeches is really high. But Trump is looking good. He's dominating the narrative while everything that the regime is doing is wreaking havoc on society, on the world and in people's lives. Trump is beginning to look like the rational, methodical actor we all know him to be. And not just relative to Biden, but relative to the Republican establishment, relative to Ron DeSantis, who he continues to separate himself from. According to Rasmussen, Trump was up 4740 on Joe Biden when people were asked who they would vote for out of the two. That's pretty spectacular. When just two and a half years ago, we were told that Joe Biden won by 7 million votes garnering 81 million real legal American votes, a claim so silly it should not be believed by anyone. And let me just get this out there for the record. When people say to you that you need to prove fraud of a certain level, they are shifting the burden of proof to you. Anyone who believes that the elections are safe and secure, that Joe Biden got 81 million real legal American votes, the burden of proof is on them to prove that. It's not on you to disprove that by making a positive case based on other facts. There's absolutely no way that Joe Biden won 81 million real legal American votes, not with everything else that happened, not with everything else we know about, not with the votes stopped in the middle of the night with Trump up hundreds of thousands in swing states, not with machine issues, not with court decisions showing that parts of elections Were run after election rules have been changed outside the bounds of the Constitution, not with mail in ballots, not with failure to check signatures, not with ballot harvesting, and the list goes on and on and on. The election system exists as it does. It is complicated in the ways it is because it allows for election manipulation. Otherwise, the system would not be needed. The system doesn't make the process easier. It doesn't make it faster. It doesn't make it more accurate. People make the claim that the standard of proof for claims of election fraud should be extraordinarily high. That's not true. It should actually be extremely low to the point where anyone who is concerned about the legitimacy of an election can easily check for themselves as a citizen So they can be sure that their rights are not being violated. Instead, we allow the state's position, the media's position, the regime's position to act as the default position that must be disproven. That has everything entirely backwards. Now, there are a couple of moments from Trump's speech last night that I want to share because they're very interesting, kind of new little twists inside a speech that we have largely heard before. And here is the first.
3: Apparently, they're not looking at me through the view of the non-criminal Presidential Records Act. They came up with a new one. This is a new one. And they're looking at me through the Espionage Act. Think of that. How does that sound? Of 1917, where the penalty is death. Even though that has absolutely nothing to do with openly taking boxes of documents and mostly clothing and other things to my home which President Obama has done, the Bushes have done, Jimmy Carter's done, Ronald Reagan has done. Everybody's done. In fact, Hillary Clinton got rid of 33,000 emails, and that was okay. But nobody's done it like Joe Biden. This lunatic special prosecutor named Jack Smith, I wonder what it was prior to a change. Of his ilk say he is even worse than they are, is only looking at Trump. Yet Joe Biden took massive amounts more documents, even removed many boxes to Chinatown. You believe that? He's got $10 million from China. Where did that come from? I guess they were banking on Hunter's expertise and had others stored in unsecured offices in Pennsylvania and strewn all over his garage floor where his now very famous Corvette is also stored, all over the floor, including classified documents, but that's okay. Perhaps most importantly, he has 1,850 boxes in Delaware, which he is refusing to give up. But isn't that real obstruction? That's obstruction. As president, I have the right to declassify documents. And the process is automatic. If I take them with me, it's automatic. Declassify. Biden was vice president. He had absolutely no right to declassify as vice president. He doesn't come under the non-criminal presidential records act. He comes under the very criminal federal records act.
1: So, Trump says apparently they're not looking at me through the Non Criminal Presidential Records Act. They're looking at me through the Espionage Act that carries with it the penalty of death. That's an interesting twist, is it not? He's throwing espionage and the death penalty right out there onto the table. The eyes of the nation are watching this speech, even the cable news channels covered it. And Trump is talking about espionage and the death penalty related to the taking of classified documents. Now think back over the last few weeks, couple of months, we discussed the mainstream coverage of Trump's desire to bring back the death penalty and how Rolling Stone freaked out about it, writing these articles about how Trump wants to go on a killing spree. We covered how some of the documents found strewn about Joe Biden's house and garage may have been directly related to the business dealings he and his son, his family had with our overseas adversaries, with the regime, specifically that 22 point email about Ukraine and Burisma that read as if it was an intelligence briefing, just copy and pasted into an email to facilitate foreign political corruption. Now, that is the sort of thing that seems like it would fall under the Espionage Act related to documents carrying with it the penalty of death. So again, you have the eradication of this supposed cultural norm and standard when it comes to political corruption that absolutely sets precedent for when these situations are reversed. And we already know what the reversal of the situation looks like. It's not some fever dream to suggest that this stuff is going to get turned around. We have decades of history and proof and evidence of political crime and corruption by prominent members of the regime. And we know that the regime's media has tried to paint the death penalty as applied by Trump as something illegitimate and cruel and horrifying. It's going to be awfully hard to claim that while Trump's opponents out there, the people who still listen to MSNBC and CNN are clamoring for Trump's execution based on espionage that did not happen while knowing espionage on the other side did happen. He went on to say, the USA is a mess. Our economy is crashing. Inflation is out of control. Russia has joined with China. Saudi Arabia has joined with Iran. China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea have formed together as a menacing and destructive coalition. It would have never happened if I was your president. It would have never happened, nor would Russia attacking Ukraine have happened. All of those lives would be saved. All of those beautiful cities would be standing. And then he said this.
3: Our currency is crashing and will soon no longer be the world standard, which will be our greatest defeat, frankly, in 200 years. There will be no defeat like that. That will take us away from being even a great power. If you took the five worst presidents in the history of the United States and added them up, they would not have done near the destruction to our country as Joe Biden and the Biden administration have done. Incredibly, we are now a failing nation. We are a nation in decline. And now these radical left lunatics want to interfere with our elections by using law enforcement. We can't let that happen. With all of this being said, and with a very dark cloud, over our beloved country. I have no doubt, nevertheless, that we will make America great again. Thank you very much. God bless you and God bless America. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you.
1: Our currency is crashing and it will soon no longer be the world's standard. Naturally, this is something that we've been discussing for a significant amount of time, Trump just said it as plainly as it can be said. That is what we are looking at. He is indicating the inevitability of the emergence of the multipolar world. There is no stopping that. And again, he said that last night with the eyes of the nation upon him. He dominated the headlines for weeks on end with this totally unjust and unsubstantiated political persecution and prosecution And he's saying to Trump haters and to the regime, this is what you wanted. This is what you're getting. Good luck with that working out for you in the future. Now, despite the flimsiness of the case, there's no reason to believe it's just going to disappear. So we're going to have this thing for a while. It's possible that Alvin Bragg left out the meat of that indictment, if there is any meat at all, because he wants to seem like he's fair to both sides, or it could be that there's no meat or that he didn't have a choice about releasing it. Or it could be that they intend to drip it out over time through a series of leaks, hoping that those leaks and those drips will keep this in the headline and continue to substantiate the entire thing in people's minds, much as they did throughout the Russiagate hoax and the Mueller investigation. We might have to play that whole situation out again. We might have 15 different days that end up taking three or four days of discussion to get through where we hear, oh, this is the real thing about this Trump case. And then everybody freaks out and then the thing falls apart. But they get to do that over and over and over again. And they convince people there really is something to this whole Trump prosecution. The problem for them is. That works the other way around too there is plenty of information that will come out that helps our side cash patel addressed this on the war room this morning your assessment of brag and and what this fiasco is and then president trump i thought yesterday was like a viking right people
3: said oh he looked you know he he gave him the bad face as he should cash patel
2: it's great to be with you and look i'm glad donald trump is capitalizing on the thing that strikes at the heart of Americans, and that is a two-tier system of justice. I'm sorry that Donald Trump has to be the figure to go through this, but he's the only one that can lead us through it and defeat it. We saw it in Russiagate. We saw it in Ukraine, impeachment one, impeachment two. We saw it on January 6th. We we're seeing it in the classified documents case, and now we're seeing it at the state court level in New York City, the capital of the world. And the only way to educate the world on this is to have a warrior like Donald Trump lead the charge on a two-tier system of justice, and that's what Al Alvin Bragg has corruptly put front and center for all to see because this indictment, Steve, you can have all the legal beagles you want talk on it, but here's a novel concept. I don't want this case to end tomorrow. I don't want it to end next week. I want Donald Trump and company to bleed Alvin Bragg dry over the next two years of discovery so we can educate the American public on the fraud and corruption that is the New York state judicial system and the DOJ and FBI that helped fund this prosecution. I want every member of Congress, like I called on last night, Where are the subpoenas? Alvin Bragg has already said he used federal funds to investigate and prosecute Donald Trump in a state court. Why hasn't the Judiciary Committee and Oversight Committees issued subpoena after subpoenas? Do they forget what the January 6th committee did to us? There is a two-tier system of justice, not just in the executive and judicial branches, but in the legislative branches, and I'm calling on Congress to act and put the documents out the receipts, as Steve Bannon always says, so the American people can read them. It is not a right-wing, Conspiracy. The two tier system of justice is here and we have to destroy it. So, Donald
1: Trump has embraced this situation over the last few weeks. He's been responsible for leading the entire narrative about this situation. Cash is embracing this situation. If we're going to see this through to the end, this is how it has to be done. Otherwise, there is no way to make the public understand this and Convince them that this is right and that they should go along with it. That's what this whole period is about. We need to understand everything that is wrong with this country and take responsibility for fixing it. He's right. It sucks that Donald Trump is the one who has to go through this. But the only way out is through, and this part of the process is necessary. Now, just briefly, while all of this was going on, while everyone was wrapped up in the Trump speech, we got the results of an election for Wisconsin Supreme Court. The balance of power there has shifted from 4-3 conservative to 4-3 communist. And immediately following that result, we were treated to a brand new series of slogans from Con Inc., the GOP establishment and elite, and the DeSantis Simps. We were told that The person responsible for losing that Supreme Court seat was Ronna McDaniel. And the other people responsible for it, of course, were voters. You see, the voters just didn't care about coming out and voting as if Wisconsin's elections are free and fair. I shared the video last night on Twitter of Robin Voss, GOP speaker of the Wisconsin House, saying that he knew that election fraud was real but that there was nothing that he could do about it. This is from early 2022, by the way, election fraud is a fact. It's not a mystery unless you simply didn't bother checking and we can see it in action. This radical progressive justice won by 14 points in Wisconsin and there was no election fraud. They're saying there was no election fraud. Also last night, Brandon Johnson, another leftist radical won the mayoral race in Chicago over a less radical Democrat, because, of course, in the blue states, they get to run Democrats against other Democrats, whereas in the red states, they get to run Democrats against Democrats with R's next to their name. So apparently the voters of Chicago decided that Lori Lightfoot was too tough on crime, and they went out and elected a defund the police candidate. So Trump gets indicted and arraigned. Then he goes and gives this really great speech. And then we get the results of this Wisconsin race. And immediately after we get to see a rerun of the same play we saw on the night of the midterms last fall, this election didn't go our way. Therefore it's Donald Trump's fault. And here's some of that reaction from the DeSantis simps, Kurt Schlichter retweeted this tweet. If the national party were competent, and by the way, this is another L for Rana, they'd have created a turnout machine in rural Wisconsin. It literally is the single most critical place in the country for the GOP juicing turnout. So you see, it's a turnout problem. It's not an election fraud problem. It's not a problem with the system, even though it's admitted that the system is a problem. You got to remember what's gone on in Wisconsin. In Racine, the sheriff there had the case about the nursing homes where ballots were being harvested from nursing home residents who did not fill out those ballots and weren't competent to fill out any ballots. They had the Supreme Court decision ruling that the drop boxes were unconstitutional, even though they were used in the 2020 election to launder hundreds of thousands of votes. Robin Voss, the sold out GOP speaker. Admitted that election fraud there is a problem, but what's the real problem? Turnout. Whose fault is it? Rana's. What did the DeSantis Simps tell us last fall when they were executing an obviously orchestrated and controlled information op to change the chair of the RNC to Harmeet Dillon? Now, again, got no problem with Harmeet Dillon and I'm not supporting Rana McDaniel. I don't have to do either of those things. It's funny, though, that the people supporting Harmeet Dillon and blaming Ronna McDaniel are DeSantis simps who deny election fraud, supported Ukraine, went along with covid. And you can just go right on down the list. They were also the ones out there during that time, during the RNC election, saying that Donald Trump was actually promoting the candidacy of Ronna McDaniel. And they don't really have any proof for that. They say Trump surrogates were doing it on the ground. This is John Cardillo from this morning. GOP chairwoman botched 2018, 2020, and 2022. But for some inexplicable reason, Trump had his team whip votes to keep her in power. I can both stand by him against sham weaponized prosecutions while understanding that his horrible personal acumen will hurt our nation. So immediately, an election for Supreme Court justice in Wisconsin is a turnout problem, which is Rana's fault, which is really Trump's fault, even though there's election fraud. And for the DeSantis simps, this becomes reinforcement of their anti-Trump argument. Isn't that amazing? Again, this is the exact same play they ran after the 2022 midterms. It's the same people running it in the same style and fashion with the same timing. And it's exactly what we've come to expect from these people. The nice thing is more of them continue to expose themselves. Now, let's say someone was right on all the big issues, right? They knew that COVID was a sham. They knew that the insurrection was infiltrated and largely faked. They were right about Ukraine, Russia. They're right on immigration. They're right on the financial stuff. Maybe, maybe you can give them a pass if they believe our elections are legitimate. But if they're wrong about all that stuff, and they're pushing the idea that our elections are legitimate in order to blame Trump, hey, that person's not on your side. And it's time everyone wakes up to it. It has been two and a half years that we have watched elections stolen in broad daylight, elections that make absolutely no sense. The Chicago election was a 51-49 result. My, 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 how do you get that? At some point, You really do need to rely on these litmus tests and stop letting these people suck you back in when they talk about trans stuff or guns or any of the other subjects that everyone is already on the right side of. They're all trying to give you all the low-hanging fruit you can eat while never letting you get at anything above that. They're doing it in coordinated fashion with the same logic and the same timing, for the same political ends. It's obvious at this point. Now, switching subjects completely without a segue, this is from yesterday. Biden administration announces additional security assistance for Ukraine. Today, the Department of Defense announces critical new security assistance for Ukraine. This includes the authorization of a presidential drawdown of security assistance with more ammunition for U.S.-provided HIMARS Air defense interceptors and artillery rounds that Ukraine is using to defend itself, as well as anti-armor systems, small arms, heavy equipment transport vehicles and maintenance support essential to strengthening Ukraine's defenders on the battlefield, valued at up to five hundred million dollars. In addition, we are announcing a significant package of air defense capabilities, as well as artillery and tank ammunition, mortar systems, rockets, and anti-armor systems using $2.1 billion in Ukraine security assistance initiative funds. The presidential drawdown is the 35th such drawdown of equipment from DOD inventories for Ukraine that the Biden administration has authorized since August, 2021. And they go through the details of the assistance package and write, unlike presidential drawdown, USAI, that's the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, is an authority under which the United States procures capabilities from industry rather than delivering equipment that is drawn down from DOD stocks. The announcement of this USAI package represents the beginning of a contracting process to provide additional capabilities to Ukraine's armed forces. The United States will continue to work with its allies and partners to provide Ukraine with the capabilities to meet its immediate battlefield needs and longer term security assistance requirements. We heard this week that Finland has been approved to join NATO. Discuss that for a second on Monday. Turkey and Hungary decided to go along and approve Finland being brought into NATO. This is the Russian Foreign Ministry's response. On April 4th, 2023, it was officially declared that all legal procedures related to Finland becoming a NATO member were completed. As we have warned on multiple occasions, the Russian Federation will have to respond with military, technical, as well as other measures in order to address national security threats arising from Finland joining NATO. Specific decisions regarding the buildup of defense capabilities along Russia's northwestern borders will depend on the specific terms on which Finland joins NATO, including the deployment of NATO's military infrastructure and offensive weapon systems on its territory. The line of contact between NATO and the Russian Federation's border has more than doubled. This constitutes a major shift for northern Europe, which used to be one of the most stable regions in the world. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization has made another step to move closer to the territory of Russia. By joining NATO, Finland has given up on its unique identity and lost its independence, which for decades gave it a special status in international affairs. Helsinki's policy of military non-alignment, which has long served its national interests and was a major confidence building factor in the Baltic region and across the European continent. But now all this has become a thing of the past. Finland became a minor NATO member without the possibility to influence any decisions. It has lost its ability to have a say in international affairs. History will tell whether Finland needed to take this ill-conceived step undertaken by the country's government without taking into consideration what the people think about it by holding a referendum and carefully examining the consequences of NATO membership. We strongly believe that this is the case. Finland's accession to NATO will have a negative effect on the bilateral relations between Russia and Finland. Now, that statement does seem pretty stern and pretty direct. And this situation is being presented by the global state propaganda media as a rebuke of Putin and Russia. But this is from Reuters last year, June 29, 2022. Russia will respond if NATO sets up infrastructure in Finland and Sweden. President Vladimir Putin said on Wednesday that Russia would respond in kind if NATO deployed troops and infrastructure in Finland and Sweden after they joined the U.S.-led military alliance. Putin said, With Sweden and Finland, we don't have the problems that we have with Ukraine. They want to join NATO. Go ahead. But they must understand there was no threat before. While now, if military contingents and infrastructure are deployed there, we will have to respond in kind and create the same threats for the territories from which threats toward us are created. He went on to say everything was fine between us, but now there might be some tensions. There certainly will. It's inevitable if there is a threat to us. So certainly this move could change the calculus on a number of fronts. And Russia seems like they are prepared to confront that directly depending on what the NATO influence actually is in Finland. But Putin hasn't been worried about this happening. That article, again, is from 10 months ago. He wasn't worried then. It's unlikely he's actually worried now. But it turns out that's the less interesting NATO news that we've gotten this week. Because today we got this. This is NATO Secretary General
2: Jens Stoltenberg. NATO's position is that Ukraine will become a member of the alliance. And that position has not changed. Uh, but we know that uh, there are at least two things we need to address uh, to make that possible. Um, one is that we need to ensure that Ukraine prevails as a sovereign independent nation. Of course, any meaningful discussion about Ukraine as a member of the alliance uh, has to be based on that Ukraine is a democratic independent nation in uh, in Europe, and that's exactly what is now challenged or threatened by the uh, uh, brutal Russian invasion.
1: So, Ukraine is going to become a part of NATO if, in fact, Ukraine continues to be a country once they beat back the brutal Russian invasion. Stoltenberg also announced a multi-year support initiative for Ukraine to make the transition from Soviet-era equipment and doctrines to NATO standards and increase interoperability with NATO. So obviously this process is not going to happen immediately. Nothing's going to happen immediately. But apparently they determined that it was required to have some sort of public display of unity and allegiance. Now we've been tracking the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipeline and Seymour Hirsch has released his latest piece on that story. He published this today, the Nord Stream ghost ship. America's Central Intelligence Agency is constantly running covert operations around the world and all must have a cover story in case things go badly, as they often do. It is just as important to have an explanation when things go well as they did in the Baltic Sea last fall. Within weeks of my report that Joe Biden ordered the destruction of the Nord Stream pipelines, the agency produced a cover story and found willing takers in The New York Times and two major German publications. By creating a story of deep-sea divers and a crew who did not exist, the agency was following protocol, and the story would have been part of the first days of secret planning to destroy the pipelines. The essential element was a mythical yacht, ironically named the Andromeda, after the beautiful daughter of a mythical king who was chained to a rock naked. The cover story was shared with and supported by the BND, Germany's Federal Intelligence Service. My initial report received coverage around the world, but was ignored by the major newspapers and television networks in the United States. As the story gained traction in Europe and elsewhere abroad, the New York Times on March 7th published a report quoting U.S. officials, asserting that American intelligence had accumulated information suggesting that a pro-Ukrainian group sabotaged the pipelines. The story said officials who had, quote, reviewed the new intelligence depicted it to be, quote, a step toward determining responsibility for the pipeline sabotage. The Times story got worldwide attention, but nothing more has been heard since from the newspaper about who did what. In an interview for a Times podcast, one of the three authors of the article inadvertently explained why the story was dead on arrival. The writer was asked about the involvement of the alleged pro-Ukrainian group. The podcast he's referring to is The Daily, that's put out by The New York Times. The host is Michael Barbaro. He said... What makes you think that's what happened? And the writer answered, I should be very clear that we know really very little, right? On April 3rd, the Washington Post reported that some European investigators now doubt that the Andromeda could have sabotaged the pipelines without the help of a second vessel. Some in Europe wondered if the role of the Andromeda was, quote, something to distract or only part of the picture. The article did not suggest that the Biden administration was involved in the destruction of the pipeline. But it did quote an unnamed European diplomat saying that everyone can see there is a body lying there, but all are pretending things are normal. It's better not to know, the diplomat said no American officials were quoted even anonymously by the post. The Biden administration has become a Nord Stream free reporting zone. Chalk one up for the various CIA officials who have been supplying phony stories to the media here and abroad in what has been a successful effort to keep the world focused on any possible suspects outside of what has emerged as the most logical one, the president of the United States. The Times also reported that a European lawmaker briefed by his country's intelligence agencies said that the service was gathering intelligence on roughly 45 ships whose transponders were not working. When they passed the area where the pipelines were blown up, one of the so-called ghost ships could have planted the mines and later pulled the trigger. After the Times story went online, Die Zeit, Germany's largest weekly newspaper, rushed to publish a report on an investigation into the Nord Stream bombing that it had been researching for months in conjunction with a public television network. The weekly had something new. It identified a yacht that it reported was rented from a company in Poland, apparently owned by two Ukrainians. The group leasing the yacht and carrying out the destruction of the pipeline was said to include a captain, two divers, two diving assistants, and a doctor. Depicted by Dezeit as assassins, whose names were not published or known, the group forged passports and had transported the needed explosives to the crime scene. The yacht was said to have sailed near the Danish island of Bornholm, which is close to the site of the pipeline sabotage. The newspaper reported that the yacht had been returned to the company that leased it. Such yachts can cost $2,000 per week or more to rent in an uncleaned condition that enabled German investigators to find traces of an explosive on the cabin table. Later stories said that investigators also had found two fraudulent Ukrainian passports left on the yacht. A subsequent story in Der Spiegel. The German weekly magazine said the yacht in question was named the Andromeda. Man, it sounds like these expert divers, this whole team, this pro Ukrainian group and definitely not the Ukrainian water polo team who carried out this intricate sabotage of critical energy infrastructure in the world was really, really sloppy about how they left the boat. Gotta love when they just find the passports there and everything is tied up in a nice little bow, you know, just like 9-11. I subsequently published a story suggesting that the information supplied by German federal police to both Die Zeit and Der Spiegel had originated with U.S. intelligence. The author of the Die Zeit report, Holger Stark, an experienced journalist whom I have known since he worked in Washington a decade or so ago, contacted me to complain about the assertion stark told me he had excellent sources in the german federal police and learned what he did from those links and not from any intelligence agency german or american i believed him and immediately corrected the story i acknowledge that it's difficult for any journalist to write about a fellow journalist especially a good one but this case involves the acceptance of facts that should have been questioned for example, I did not ask Stark if he wondered why an American newspaper nearly 4,000 miles away would publish the same allegation about a group of unnamed Ukrainians who were not linked to the leadership in Kiev that officials in Germany said they had been chasing. We did discuss a fact that he brought up that officials in Germany, Sweden and Denmark had decided shortly after the pipeline bombings to send teams to the site to recover the one mine that has not gone off. He said they were too late. An American ship had sped to the site within a day or so and recovered the mine and other materials. I asked him why he thought the Americans had been so quick to get to the site, and he answered with a wave of his hand, you know what Americans are like, always wanting to be first. There was another very obvious explanation. The trick of a good propaganda operation is to provide the targets, in this case, the Western media, with what they want to hear. One intelligence expert put it to me more succinctly. When you do an operation like the pipelines, you need to plan a counterop, a red herring that has a whiff of reality, and it must be as detailed as possible to be believed. People today have forgotten that there is such a thing as parody, the expert said. Gilbert and Sullivan's HMS Pinafore is not a history of the Royal Navy in the 19th century. It's a parody. The CIA's goal in the pipeline case was to produce a parody that was so good that the press would believe it. But where to start? Cannot have the pipelines destroyed by a bomb from an airplane or sailors on a rubber boat. But why not a sailboat? Any serious student of the event would know that you cannot anchor a sailboat in waters that are 260 feet deep, the depth at which the four pipelines were destroyed. But the story was not aimed at him, but at the press who would not know a parody when presented with one. The intelligence expert listed all the elements needed before an individual or group could charter an expensive yacht. You cannot just walk off the street with a fake passport and lease a boat. You either need to accept a captain who was supplied by the leasing agent or owner of the yacht, or have a captain who comes with a certificate of competency as mandated by maritime law. Anyone who's ever chartered a yacht would know that. Similar proof of expertise and competence for deep-sea diving involving the use of a specialized mix of gases would be required by the divers and the doctor. The expert had more questions about the alleged yacht. How does a 49-foot sailboat find the pipelines in the Baltic Sea? The pipelines are not that big, and they are not on the charts that come with the lease. Maybe the thought was to put two divers into the water. Not very easy to do from a small yacht. And let the divers look for it. How long can a diver stay down in their suits? Maybe 15 minutes, which means it would take the diver four years to search one square mile. None of these questions is asked by the media. So you have six people on the yacht, two divers, two helpers, a doctor and a captain leasing the boat. One thing is missing. Who is going to crew the yacht or cook? What about the logbook that the leasing company must keep for legal reasons? None of this happened. The expert told me, stop trying to link this to reality. It's a parody. The stories in the New York Times and the European press have given no indication that any journalist was able to board and physically examine the yacht in question, nor do they explain why any passengers on the yacht would leave passports, fraudulent or otherwise, on board after a rental. There have been photographs of a sailboat in dry dock named Andromeda published. None of this can save a bad cover story. The intelligence expert told me the effort to turn fiction into truth will go on forever. Now it's a picture of a sailboat that appears after the investigation that can't be traced, with no license number where it legally should be. The Andromeda has replaced the piltdown man in the press. The expert had one final thought. In the world of professional analysts and operators, everyone will universally and correctly conclude from your story that the devilish CIA conducted a counterop that is on its face so ridiculous and childish that the real purpose was to reinforce the truth. So it's hard to know exactly what to make of this situation. Seymour Hirsch's claims about the involvement of U.S. intelligence, about this potentially being a U.S. operation, perhaps in coordination with British intelligence, Ukrainians, and who knows who else, is plausible and does map onto reality. It does make sense. The attempted refutations of Hirsch's claims don't make sense. They don't add up. They seem totally implausible. We have claims by Biden and Victoria Newland that state explicitly that something would be done to take that pipeline off the board. The motivations being to prevent the Russian energy trade to hold leverage over the European countries that depend on it and to use that leverage in order to continue the efforts in Ukraine by the regime to protect their stronghold there against the brutal Russian invasion. Now, I said on Monday that I wanted to discuss some Twitter stuff because there's some interesting stuff going on there. And there was a hilarious article written in the Atlantic over the weekend that is worth having some fun with. And we'll get there in a second. But Elon Musk released part of the Twitter algorithm a few days back and immediately People online began digging through it and telling us what they found. There was a great thread on Twitter from an account that goes by NFT underscore God. So NFT God. Here's what he says Here is exactly how your tweets are ranked. Found this in the algorithm code. The tweets like count is the biggest impact, 30 times the impact of replies. Next is retweet count, 20 times the impact of replies. Post something offensive. Tweet is dead in the water. Multiple hashtags. You're not getting ranked. Mention something trending. Chat A small boost. Image or video attached big two times boost. A lot of lessons to be gleaned here. Here's an obvious one. If you are verified, your account gets a big boost in the algorithm. Follower to following ratio matters. If you follow way more users than are following you, your content will be deprioritized. And this kind of sucks for people with really low follower counts who like following a bunch of people, but it does deter people from doing that thing where they follow a ton of people so that those people will follow them back in order to boost their own follower account. He says, here are some more boosts and demotions your content can get. Boosts include trends, media, news, So if you're hitting on the big topics of discussion, you are more likely to get seen. Demotions include no text, a URL only, or a name only. Links get deprioritized if they are non-news or non-media. Post outside links at your own risk. And there actually does seem to be some suppression of anything leading to Substack from Twitter, which is very odd and a bit unsettling, to be honest. He says... Here is how your account reputation is calculated. It takes into account follower-to-following ratio, account age, device usage, if you've been restricted or suspended, and if you're verified. Your influence on Twitter, and in turn how likely your tweets are to be seen, is heavily determined by the quality of users you interact with. Interact with low-quality accounts with bad follower-to-following ratios and are marked as spam, not safe for work, bots, or toxic— And you get penalized. There is a file of blacklisted topics. These blacklisted topics are unknown and live in a database, not in this code. And if your tweet or username references these blacklisted topics, your profile and content get deranked. Now, some of that becomes obvious just from interacting with Twitter. Some of it is common, the sort of thing that happens across social media platforms. Some of it, like having blacklisted topics that no one can know about, is a bit unnerving. And some of it makes complete and total sense, like trying to game the system by following a ton of people in the hopes that they'll follow you back. I'm not sure what the exact number is of accounts you can follow and actually see anything that those accounts post. If you follow too many, you're going to miss most of it. And when you're one of those accounts that follows 5,000 people and only has a thousand followers, it becomes pretty obvious that you're trying to game the system to increase attention toward your account by following all these accounts you cannot possibly follow. There's just no way that someone can follow 5,000 accounts in any organic fashion. And honestly, why would anyone want to? Now, we've been told for a long time that. The legacy check marks the blue verified accounts. All of the verified accounts are eventually going to go away, and the only verified accounts that will exist will be members who became verified by paying for Twitter Blue, and that includes celebrities and media figures, media organizations, companies, politicians, etc. And now that process has begun. Over the weekend, Elon Musk stripped the New York Times of their verification. CNN, the New York Times, and the Los Angeles Times had all made statements about how they were not going to pay for Twitter's blue check verification once Elon stripped their accounts of the legacy verifications. They said that Twitter just wasn't as reliable as it used to be. Upon hearing that the New York Times and other organizations weren't going to pay for their check marks, Elon said on Twitter, oh, okay, we'll take it off then. And then he went ahead and did it. And on Sunday, he tweeted this. The real tragedy of The New York Times is that their propaganda isn't even interesting. Also, their feed is the Twitter equivalent of diarrhea. It's unreadable. They would have far more real followers if they only posted their top articles. Same applies to all publications. And then you have to love this one. Last night, NPR was relabeled as U.S. state-affiliated media which, by the way, is exactly what they are. They claim to have editorial independence, which is preposterous. All of these legacy regime outlets are, in one way or another, just state media. And we've talked plenty of times about that state media claim. Media organizations around the world that do not support the agenda of the global regime are called state media by global regime media. And now that's just been made obvious to everyone. NPR, in fact, is state media. So is the BBC. So is the CBC, for that matter. Kanakoa had a great post on Twitter today about this. He said NPR dismissed a laptop containing evidence of 459 crimes the Biden family and their business associates committed as not really news and a distraction days before the 2020 presidential election. NPR continues to turn a blind eye to the Biden family's crimes, financial corruption and foreign kickbacks because they are a fraudulent news organization that is a propaganda tool for the U.S. political establishment. NPR is worse than U.S. state affiliated media. It's state backed propaganda media in its purest form. The fake press secretary addressed this from the White House podium today. And by the way, the fake press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, was recently in a drunk driving accident that no one is talking about, but she was happy to step up and defend NPR against this claim of state affiliated media, which they indisputably are
0: the hard hitting independence nature of their coverage speaks, uh, speaks for itself. And so I'll leave it there. Okay.
1: The hard hitting independent nature of their coverage speaks for itself spoken like a fellow propagandist, spoken from the perspective of the total inversion within the false reality. And speaking of that, the writers at the Atlantic, the Blue Anon sect of the Twitterverse, is none too happy about these changes on Twitter. This is by a woman named Virginia Heffernan on Saturday in the Atlantic. The Twitter I love doesn't exist anymore. So here we go. This is a sentimental story about Twitter, a little Twitter Billy elegy. I spilled tears, heavy Patsy Klein tears, for the platform for the first time a few weeks ago during a walk with Amanda Ginsburg, a writer and photographer I'd long followed on Twitter for her excellent tweets about American politics and photos of libidinous flowers. She cried. About Twitter for the first time a few weeks ago, while she was on a walk with a lady who takes pictures of flowers that apparently have some erotic nature as if they were Georgia O'Keeffe paintings. She cried big, heavy Patsy Klein tears over Twitter for the first time a few weeks ago. That kind of suggests she's cried over Twitter multiple times now, it also has the air of that kind of elitist liberal that when you have proven them wrong beyond a shadow of a doubt about a whole variety of subjects, they say, well, you know, I just I just really don't like to spend my life focused on those kinds of things. There's just better things in the world to spend your time on. And it's from that perspective that you end up Worshipping people's pictures of flowers that they took with their iPhones. Ginn's her Twitter handle, and I had never met face to face. But with the arsonist new management torching the platform's vibe, we had decided to stroll together in Brooklyn Bridge Park and slag Elon Musk. Oh, hey, girl, let's go on a walk in the park together and talk about how much we hate Elon Musk, I know you're a total and complete stranger outside of our Twitter relationship, but I was hoping it would be appropriate that we could cry together. (laughs) Oh my God, it's unbelievable. Before Musk took over, you went to Twitter to satirize the hi hats while also learning and teaching. Hey lady, you're right for the Atlantic. That's you we're satirizing you. You're not satirizing systems of power. You're the system of power being satirized. But Musk seemed to think Twitter was chiefly for propaganda, self-aggrandizement and enemy smiting. He never took the time to loiter and banter and approach new subjects with equanimity, curiosity, amusement. Yes, he had long waxed anti vax and hammered away at edgelord Paliver. But what did it for me anyway came on October 30th when he amplified some truly twisted and false cruelty, implying that Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul, had solicited sex from the QAnon promoting intruder who cracked his skull with a hammer. Ah, oh, yeah, the whole Paul Pelosi hammer time story was just completely and totally true. Atlantic writer, you nailed it. And he was definitely QAnon based on those blog posts that had just been created days earlier, despite the fact that he was a nudist drug addict living at a San Francisco flop house with BLM signs outside. Nailed it. The joy left Mudville. It hasn't returned. Ah, you see those references? That's a line from Casey at the bat. I am so literary. Today, Twitter feels more expired than evil. And by the way, Mark Elias himself, the totally corrupt lawfare hack of the DNC, who goes around trying to make sure election fraud cases can never see the light of day or be properly adjudicated he retweeted this article with that little quote. Today, Twitter feels more expired than evil. The company is worth less than half of what Musk paid when he bought it in October, according to the chief twit himself. The firm Bot Sentinel estimates that nearly 900,000 users, including some celebrities, deactivated their accounts in the week after Musk moved in. And as of January, more than 500 of Twitter's biggest advertisers had stopped spending on the platform. The market research company Insider Intelligence predicts that by the end of next year, some 32 million users will split. Fed up with hate speech and tech glitches, the most visible consequences of Musk's prodigious layoffs. The people leaving the platform, Insider Intelligence further predicts, will be those unwilling to tolerate a, quote, degrading experience. I asked Ginz what she truly thought about the Twitter sunset. She said she wasn't quite ready to jump to an alternative platform like Mastodon. I'm leaving it the way I have all my toxic relationships. She later wrote to me by email, slowly head down, curtsying in reverse toward the door. And what a beautiful portrayal of modern feminism, sexualizing pictures of flowers, crying over technology, and totally unable to leave toxic relationships because of the deep-seated understanding that it's actually you who's the toxic one. Me too. I had downloaded my tweet archive and deleted the app, but not my account. I had a U-Haul idling outside and was spending nights in my unfinished studio on Mastodon, but I was still returning to tweet. Isn't that amazing? An abusive relationship, can't really leave it, keeps on going while pretending to hate it and more than likely to completely double down when she goes back. On Thursday evening, with the news of former President Donald Trump's indictment, I reflexively popped over to Twitter, the way a person might turn to CBS for March Madness. After all, I grooved in many of my most compulsive social media habits during that grim interval in American life, the Twitter heyday, when Trump's bleeding presence on the platform made it the only sensible place to track, expose, and gallows mock his designs on democracy. The high water mark for Twitter's relevance has to have been the Trump pandemic sloth 2015 to 2022, when, at least for some of us, American news and Twitter were one and the same. Ah, you see what she did there? Trump is the pandemic and the high water mark for Twitter's relevance happened during the period of overwhelming censorship. Isn't that incredible? The news quoted tweets important figures were forever taking to Twitter as if to a pulpit in the sky. And tweets then hashed over the news and thus gave the news more inches of copy, which in turn gave Twitter more characters. So much quote tweeting and retweeting meant that the same exact words whipped around in a spinner until word salad, a meme of the era used to mock nonsense by exploitative gurus, such as the Nexium cult leader, Keith Rainier and Trump seem to be more broadly opposite. And you gotta wonder what made this lunatic think of Nexium. Maybe she just got as excited about saying word salad as she does when she sees pictures of flowers. In 2018, Twitter even had its first profitable year. It seemed to have found its reason for being, but that wasn't the Twitter I missed most. Instead, in reminiscing with Ginns, I cast back further to Twitter's early years and the moment when I began to appreciate the fascination of the new microblogging service. I signed up for Twitter in two thousand seven, shortly after the service had been showcased at the South by Southwest Festival in Austin. In those days you still responded chiefly when you heard your name called, at Jack, at EV, at Page eighty eight. Jack Dorsey and Evan Williams, with Biz Stone and Noah Glass, were Twitter's founders. Page 88 was, and I guess still is, me, my middle name, and my birthday. August 8th. Why did I choose such a cutesy handle? Because Twitter looked like a porn shop or a payday loan place to me, and I didn't want any of my antics there to get back to my bosses at the New York Times, where I then worked. Ooh, she was such an edgy anon back then. In 2009, I found myself at South by Southwest. The Times media critic David Carr, who died in 2015, was there too and adept at tweeting. Later, when my mentions filled up with comments on the keynote interview I conducted, and some of them were, let's say, barbed, David counseled me to remember that Twitter is for twits, for sure. But some of the tweets were funny. At South by Southwest, the platform was put to use as an expansive but not limitless group text for making plans to get barbecue or see Metallica at Stubbs. Good show. I realized then that I could endure a bit of hazing if it meant I'd get to listen in. To my surprise, sometime after I got back to New York, a white checkmark in an aqua fresh blue badge flickered up next to my handle. At first, I worried that it might signal a bench warrant of some new social media kind. But a top editor at the Times told me it meant I was trustworthy, the way stars indicate that an eBay seller has a good track record. My boss also instructed me to use my real name on Twitter, tag the Times, mix it up with readers, and above all, keep my voice. The newspaper in those innocent days was aiming for glassnost, or maybe Noblesse Oblige. This lady really is insane. She's talking about her responsibility as an elite to help out the less fortunate via tweeting. The newspaper in those innocent days was aiming for glassnost or maybe noblesse oblige when it came to the upstart platform that would later bedevil it. Musk is set to begin erasing such legacy checkmarks today, making them available only to users who buy them. Not long after, I discovered an even more vital use for Twitter. I was pregnant in Austin, and a baby soon showed up to go with my existing four-year-old. I've heard that some women are entirely fulfilled by motherhood. But I'm with Rachel Cusk, Kate Chopin, and Elena Ferrante in finding blessed babies maybe not 110% intellectually fulfilling. No need to rehash all the feminist truths here, but suffice it to say that I found nursing an infant and chasing a preschooler while engrossing, not a perfect match for a decent set of wits. Got that there? She's too smart and too important for motherhood. Almost everyone who tries this stuff tends to have some intellectual resources sort of left over. For me, that's where Twitter came in a sop for cognitive surplus. You see, she just needed something to do with all of her intelligence and wit and her need as an elite to help her underlings. Just not a kid. While pregnant, I had read books, but now that the new baby had brought its thrillingly condensed biorhythms into the household, life was a bit too fragmentary for sustained concentration. Anyway, I was already feeling internal. My heart was breaking in slow motion, in sync with my marriage. Something unlonesome was what I needed, but also something I could do from a rocking chair. I required a reminder that there were quick and even wise people in the world with ideas, quips, even lectures that would force me to learn something. I was also groaning under the weight of my own caringness. So the connection I sought would need to be bracing, non-intimate, and entirely unmaternal. So her ability to care for her husband and kids was totally sapped. But her ability to care for total strangers in the world who need her elitism just to survive. Well, she had some caring left for them. And thank goodness she had all of her intelligence and wit to spare because none of that was needed for motherhood or being a wife. One of my earliest tweets, as I recall, was, if they follow, will I lead? (laughs) How does this woman exist? Honestly, how does she exist? How does she get up and get dressed in the morning? This person is absolutely insane. Why did Twitter give people followers and not something neutral like contacts? Later, I decided the word was less cultish than physical. On Twitter, you followed existence with your eyes as the text scrolled on, threads and feeds and trains of thought. The now familiar user experience has been described many ways, several of them scary, doom scrolling in a cesspool. But my own experience of Twitter is something I simply call reading. It was just the tonic I craved in those postpartum days. With educations and experiences different from my own, And areas of distinct expertise, people on Twitter were writing, reporting what they had seen that I hadn't, dilating on what they knew that I didn't. Even as years passed, and army after army of trolls, like something out of Lord of the Rings, charged me with idiocy and worse, I could never see Twitter as sewage or snakes or the apocalypse. The ubiquitous claims that it breeds toxicity, come with far more fury than metrics, and such claims rarely, if ever, mention the insight, polemic, conviviality, and fellowship the site also bred. You gotta love how she recognizes her responsibility as an elite to help the lesser species, even though she obviously hates everyone who she imagines is on a lower social strata than she is herself. Over time, I acquired navigation skills with some blocking finesse. I could tune out the threats I got from the far right and watch. I'll screw it up now. I never felt in reputational danger from the left, even when activists criticized points I made about gender or sex work. And of course you didn't. You just assumed their position to discover you're wrong is to open up the possibility of being right. And being right is great. There was bliss in those days in watching someone I'd never heard of unfurl a fully formed aria that mixed memoir, reporting, and data. Maybe something about voting in North Carolina, or abortion among Mormons, or the moment apartheid became inevitable in South Africa. And you can just see her doing it herself, right? She's complaining about Twitter while complaining about being a mom and a wife, promoting radical feminism and leftism and showing you that she has all these disparate references that she can weave into her magical little tale. It's like a smorgasbord of intellectual elitism complete with elitist vocabulary. I would give that version of Twitter to the heroine in the yellow wallpaper, Charlotte Perkins Gilman's story about a woman whom men have confined to a disturbingly ugly room for the crime of having ideas. Because you know how that happens just all the time in feminist literature and not really ever in real life. It was when I told this to Ginz that I started to cry. I think it could have kept her from going insane. I said, I think it saved me from going insane. Not didn't. Later, I'd imagine sending the Twitter app back fully 124 years to Edna Pontellier in Kate Chopin's The Awakening. Edna would surely miss Robert less and divorce Leonce if she knew that she could tweet her analysis of the feminine mystique at Roxanne Gay and Pussy Riot. And probably she's Edna Pontellier get some superb replies. And oh, how I wish I could shoot Twitter to Olga in Elena Ferrante's The Days of Abandonment, the novel that surely contains the greatest ever depictions of mothering under pressure as a source of reality in the form of news and strength in the form of human contact. Twitter might have been just the thing for Olga. At the very least, she might have DM'd a friend to break down her door, bring her a babysitter, and order her a grappa. (laughs) It's like we're on vacation in Greece again. These people are absolutely loathsome. The nameless narrator in The Yellow Wallpaper, Forbidden to Work, remarks that if only she could write, she might be able to relieve the press of ideas. What a great phrase. The press of ideas is what I also felt in my kids' early years, and a deep curiosity about the ideas pressing inside other isolated skulls. You got that? Not really interested in her kids' ideas, just interested in her ideas during motherhood that she reframes as isolation. Wow. 15 years is an eternity in social media that lively chatty tart, but good faith. Twitter had an excellent run, but it's vanished from the app. Now gone like my kid's childhoods and David Carr and Trump's presidency and the rocking chair for nursing and my husband and obviously my will to live and, uh, my baseline immunity against the whole range of pathogens. And my ability to say that I have never supported Nazis. Yes, Virginia, that's it. There's no Santa Claus either. He's gone too. You get it? I know how much you like literary references. In its place, as often as not, are heavy-handed tweets from Musk himself. The good news is Amanda Ginsburg is my real friend now. And even more than the delightful at Gins, her account, she always gets it right. In a recent email, she compared the bygone Twitter to Thanksgiving dinner. Now and then, Ginz wrote, you'd get up the nerve to interject an idea of your own or respond to someone else's, and the people at the table would burst into laughter or nod in recognition, and you could take a breath, feeling briefly safe, understood, and not entirely alone. And that, my friends, is an absolutely perfect portrayal of the utter wreckage of the mind of those most committed to the party of false decorum. This lady is utterly insane. And you can only imagine how fast that's going to go downhill. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work.